Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the Interior Design Community for the Interior Design Community. My name is Jeff Hayward and with my co-presenter Susie Rumbold, Creative Director of Tasuta Interiors, and our three very special guests, today we'll be talking about the climate emergency and what the interior design industry can do about it. On March the 17th, 2021, a group of nine forward-thinking and influential design firms got together to launch an ambitious project called Interior Design Declares. As part of the International Construction Declares movement, they've committed to working together to urge everyone in the UK design and construction industry to adopt a paradigm shift in their behaviour over climate change. And they are leading by example. These are innovative practices whose holistic approach takes them far beyond what would generally be considered the normal remit of the interior designer. As well as combining science and technology and construction with the art of the visually satisfying, these pioneering designers have added behavioral change research, biophilic design, wellness and social justice to the mix. So this is interior design, but not as we know it. And how can they and we be a force for good in the global fight against an imminent environmental catastrophe. Welcome to the interior design business. We are joined by Josie Lee, Senior Interior Designer at Commercial Design and Architecture Practice, MCM. Oliver Heath, founder of Oliver Heath Design and a globally renowned expert on biophilic design and Jack Stone, wellness design specialist and founder of Persona Abode. We're going to find out more about the declaration and what it means personally for them and for our industry. Before we begin, can you just briefly introduce yourselves and how your practice is committed to acting on climate change? Um, Yes, hello, Um, my name is Josie Lees. Um, I'm a senior designer at MCM where I've worked for about five years now. Um, I've always had a big interest in all things to do with our environment and I think this has followed me throughout my entire life and also career um, but in recent years the climate emergencies have become even more pressing and dramatic changes are needed to improve the planet's outlook. Um, I was inspired to get involved with Interior Design Declares um, to hopefully unite the industry and make a big difference to the way that we think about and run our projects going forward. Um, I guess a little bit about MCM too. Um, MCM are a practice which specialises in architecture, interior design, uh, workplace consultancy and also behavioural change, uh, mostly for workplace projects but we work within a variety of different sectors as well. Um, a, a key part of what, how we work is around social good and creating a future that people love. So no matter what kind of project it is, whether it's an interior design project or it's developing new ways of working for an organisation. We always want to enhance and not harm our environment and our communities. So because of this core belief, um, we're actually in the process of becoming a B Corps. Um, So I think in a matter of weeks now, uh, we will actually become a B Corps business, which is business that balances purpose and profit. And so that'd be a really proud achievement for us. Um, So Interior Design Declares is something really close to MCM's heart and aligns with how we think the whole your design industry should work going forward. MCM is active across a range of different sectors, isn't it, as well? Um, yeah, we primarily work within um, kind of commercial works, workplace um, design. We, but we kind of, we aren't just interior design. We have an architecture um, wing and we also do behavioural change and workplace consultancy. So that's 
quite particularly at the moment, um, quite a busy um, part of the business. There's obviously a lot of people are changing the way that they work because of COVID. Oliver, over to you. Yeah, my name's Oliver Heath. I am founder of Oliver Heath Design and sustainability is one of those subjects that I have been passionate about for some time. Uh, back in 2000, when I started working in television, I recognised that this is a subject that was just being totally ignored. Um, one that was, was having of increasing importance at that point. So I made it my mission from 2000 onwards that when I was working in television or had a platform to talk about the value that design had, that I should mention and discuss sustainability and how um, my clients um, who range across the commercial and domestic sector could engage with those. And for it not just to be a subject that was you know, carbon centered, but also how we could design with carbon in mind. So in uh, 2003, I launched an online eco store called Ecocentric that started to offer beautifully designed sustainable products. Uh, so it was quite an early sort of pioneer of, of that and looking for products that were either low energy, um, that were made with renewable resources or renewable materials that, that didn't poison our environments or that had the potential to be recycled or were made from recycled materials. So those were kind of concepts that I wove into my design practice from an early stage. I then wrote about it in a book called Urban Eco Chic that looked to marry both the practical and the aesthetic aspects of sustainability. Um, and again, these ideas are things that we've woven in and tried to make the idea of sustainable interior design, something that wasn't just a, a nice to have, but an essential way that we should think about the whole of the design of our interior environments. Because I felt for, for way, way too long that for some reason, the, the world of interior design is all too often seen as a sort of a luxury market that exists on some sort of higher ethereal plane for which you know the other sort of worldly uh, global issues um, didn't touch or taint. But I think now with the rising sort of tide and awareness and conversation of sustainability and climate crisis, that it's time that the interior design world steps up and recognizing the, the deep impact that the work that we do has on a wider level, on a global context, but also in the spaces that we create. Jex, I bet a lot of that resonates with you too. Yes, my name is Jex Stone. Yes, it does, most definitely. Um, mine is very much focus on human impact, um, being a well-being and, and vegan interior designer. I'm always thinking about the impact a built environment has on human health. Um, through my own experiences, through illnesses, um, my partner being paraplegic and having to navigate a world what doesn't cater for him, um, and being a person of colour as well, that I see the disparities um, where we make products, that there is just a, a, so, so much of a disadvantage there. And we can really affect that um, individually um, in terms of residential design. But we, whatever you create within that world, it has an impact um, outside of that home. And I think it's really important to always consider that. And um, I don't think enough has been done. And when I um, became an interior designer back in 2017, I kind of looked at the industry and it was all about aesthetics. And I was, this was like, no, I, I can't, because I've always, like being really eco-friendly since I was a little girl. And I've, you know, I've done recycle management and I've um, worked in conservation architecture. And I was just never happy that it was never a big enough consideration and really disheartened about um, every magazine was always just talking about the look, the look, the look. And that was never um, what I was entered the, the industry for. And I felt, well, if no one else is doing it, at least I can do it and impact in individuals. So, yeah, that's what I do. And here you are. Amazing. 
The Construction Declares Group was launched in Britain in May 2019. What is it and why is there a need for a separate interior design declares group and how did you guys come to, to be launching this? Yeah, I was aware that um, Architects Declare launched uh, at that point and it forms sort of part of a wider umbrella, umbrella group that, that incorporates all different sectors of the built environment. Um, Architects Declare obviously is, is kind of uh, open to ARB and RIBA registered practices. And of course, um, we've seen the conversation and language around uh, net zero buildings being um, one that the architectural world has embraced fully. And, and of course, I think we all understand that buildings will have a deep impact on the environment, both in embedded carbon, but also in use carbon. And I think to a certain degree, it's a little bit more of a, of a sort of um, more subtle art of sort of understanding the impact that an interior design might have on the wider planet. So um, I felt it was really important that the whole sort of kind of, uh, kind of ecosystem, as it were, of the design world um, gets involved and recognizes the impact that it has. And, and not for, for the interior design world, just to step back and go, well, you know, it's all about buildings. Because every product, every material, every service that we engage with has some impact on the planet. And we need to start standing up and recognizing that and, and finding some way of mitigating it and understanding, you know, the impact that we have and how we can do something better. I noticed that the UK is the only participating construction declares country where interior designers have become independently engaged. What is it about the UK interior design industry that makes us pioneers in this way? I think partly, I think, you know, the architects declare started in the UK. So we've kind of got that, that initial kind of basis there. But I think as, the, in the, as a country, we're so connected to our supply chain, unlike other countries where I think Brexit's brought us into quite sharp focus, COVID has, we, we are an island and we import so much stuff. Um, and I think in, in terms of the built, the built environment, that, that's kind of true. We've got a lot of products coming from all over the world and we're, we're so aware that they're there. Um, so I think a lot of you people in the UK in particular are kind of a little bit more tuned in maybe than some other countries. And so we've, we've, we've kind of pushed it forward. Um, so yeah, it's, it's great to see that we're pioneering, but I think there's still a lot more we can do and um, we're, we're making steps in the right direction, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, as we've seen on social media, there's a rising trend in, in sort of ethical lifestyle and living. And of course, the things that we really interact with on a daily basis, the things inside our homes and our buildings, you know, of course, you know, the buildings that we, we live and work in do shelter us, but it's the tables, it's the furniture, it's the chairs, the fabrics, the materials, the products, but I think it's time we did start to ask, you know, where is this with stuff coming from? I think the, the, the global pandemic has, without a doubt, led many more people to think on a more systems level, to understand that things are not there individually, but, but more deeply connected. And, you know, once we start to understand those sort of supply chains and those, those levels of connections and the impact they can have, as we've seen with the virus spreading so rapidly all over the world, you know, equally, the influence that we can have can have a similarly beneficial effect. Sustainability has been talked about for a long, long time in building construction. In fact, a lot of the research, a lot of the technology is already there to make the environmentally positive changes in methods and practices. But it, it, it seems to me that it's not the, it's the collective will that's lacking. Why do you think that's the case? I don't think there's collective will lacking, to be honest. I think that it's a big juggernaut to move but I think there's lots of very passionate individuals in, in 
almost every company um, involved in the industry. So I think it's just about kind of mobilizing people and getting people passionate and putting pressure on um, yeah, their, their, you know, their, their companies and their clients and things to, to make the changes. Is it because you think people are not aware, there's nowhere where people can go to find the products and the information that they need? Some of that, I think it's a big, um, it, there's kind of a knowledge gap, I think, and a lot of people don't know where to even start. I think that's a big problem. Um, and hopefully this, this um, you know, this declaration can bring together like-minded people that are interested in doing better. You don't have to be perfect to sign up, but you need to have the will to do better. Um, and yeah, we, we can get together to work out, you know, the information gaps. And um, I think I think that issue is important because, um, you know, when we talk about the impact a building might have, we might be talking about U-values and the sort of insulation of a building or air tightness uh, or, or the use of renewable energies. And it's sort of maybe sometimes more tangible measurable elements that we can say okay well i understand the build up of that wall and understand why that makes this an energy efficient building but when we come to complex products like you know where is you know all the materials and fabrics of this chair come from we've got all these different supply chains that we've got to get into and it does start you know opening us up to you know a whole can of worms about you know the the origin of the, of the product uh, how it's made who made it how we're going to use it, how we're going to repair it, and where it's going to go to afterwards. I mean, th there are a lot of questions that we've got to ask that, that we're not used to. And, and I think as designers, we've got to get better at, at making the demands from our suppliers to going, well, tell me about this. Tell me in detail. Where's it come from? How am I going to use it? And where's it going to go to afterwards? And that is not in the, in the kind of current lexicon of conversation. Is there a sense that it's all a bit overwhelming and as an individual, as an individual interior designer, you might feel, where do I start? I think there's, there's definitely that feeling. And I think there's, there's a little bit of a reliance on assuming that someone is the expert on it and to put, put it on them to make the right responsible decision on a specification. But it is overwhelming, but it is also overwhelmingly important that we, um, that we learn how to specify sustainably, whether that's, um, you know, doing the research yourself, listening to podcasts, um, you're reading books on the matter. I think it's upskilling everyone is the sort of challenge rather than relying on a few. But I also think too that when it comes to interrogating our supply chain, sometimes the suppliers themselves don't know where their component parts are coming from or their processes or their manufacturers, them, you know, the people that are out there actually doing the work. So I guess perhaps it's about people pushing back up the supply chain to sort of say, well, you need to now go off and find out so you can tell me and so that I can have confidence in specifying whatever it is you're trying to sell me. I, I completely agree. There are, there are difficult conversations to be had, but you know, like the saying goes, the best time to plant a tree was 40 years ago and the second best time is today. So there's a climate crisis going on that puts our living environment under threat. We all have to do whatever we can to mitigate that and it's as simple as that just put your hands up saying i don't know is okay and to go look let's let's just restart let's find out let's ask those questions let's do better from right now let's educate ourselves none of us in designers declare our experts we're not going out to hunt people down if they're not acting on every single element of the declaration it's a it's it's a declaration of intent of a desire to go yeah, I know I've got to do better. We've all got to do better. And this is the start for many. I was really interested to notice too that um, the interior designers 
your declaration goes further than the construction declaration. And I, I picked out that there were four key areas where this is true. So why I was wondering why you felt it was important to kind of go further than the architects had done and include these things. The first one that you talk about is recognizing the disproportionate impact of construction on disadvantaged communities. We have to recognize that the climate emergency, it largely affects the global south and disadvantaged communities. The, the choices we make and the emissions we emit they, they're the, the flooding that's happening in the global south or the droughts or, you know, um, the lack loss of biodiversity or the food scarcity that is caused by the, our supply chains, uh, essentially. Um, you take the example of timber, for example. If we're not specifying timber that is sustainably sourced with an FSC or PEFC certification, that, that timber could be coming from anywhere. It could be coming from, it, it could be illegally logged in the Amazon and you, you're taking that resource away from a disadvantaged community um, and, and the whole world um, by extension. So it's, it's, it's kind of not fair that we're kind of having such a big impact and our carbon footprints are so large. The global average carbon footprint is 3.5 tonnes. In the UK, our footprint is th around 13 tonnes. So you've got this massive disparity between, between what's happening. They don't have interior design necessarily in those countries which are closer to 3.5 tonnes. So it, it's not fair that we're um, taking up so many resources, um, essentially. <laughs> and, then, and then I also noticed that there's a commitment within the, within the declaration to a policy of diversity and employment. How does that relate to climate, the climate emergency? Yeah, I think with um, the more voices and the more diverse voices that you have at the table making the decisions about people who either can have interior design services or not, um, the better. Um, you have to understand all the cultures that come into play whenever you're creating any environment. I, I would say, you know, there are changes going on, but at the point that Architects Declare was launched was uh, about 18 months ago. Yeah. 2019, May 2018, almost just rising two years. I think all our listeners will recognise that that was more or less an entire lifetime ago and almost anything that happened then is, is, is different now. So, of course, we, we've undergone all sorts of social, environmental uh, and health concerns in that time that has almost um, unrecognisably changed the world. And, and so I think we do, the kind of changes that we've made to the declaration uh, reflect that, but that are also happening in the wider construction declares as well. And, um, and Josie, you already mentioned um, insisting on third party certification because you were talking about sustainable wood. Um, you've, you've also put that in as part of your, of your declaration. What was, what was the thinking behind that? And, and why aren't the architects doing it? <laughs> I think it's, um, third party certification is, is quite a tricky one. We did deliberate on this one um, in the sense that we don't want to specify exactly which, which um, certifications you should be looking for, because there are quite a few. Um, but basically, it's, it's having a third party review a product and it's independent. Um, so you haven't just got the marketing spin. I think the interior design industry is very prone to greenwashing where, um, you know, <laughs> There's kind of big marketing claims made about a product or it's recycled or but it's not actually any better for the planet or it's potentially worse it can't be recycled at the end of its life so looking for those kind of third party certifications gives you that kind of extra level of um, knowledge that you um you're specifying the right products and this is a big bugbear of mine construction and packaging waste i mean you you all see a lot of that on site surely 
pulling that out in the declaration, I think, is a hugely positive step. Without a doubt, anybody that's bought a sofa or, or sort of a set of drawers or lighting would just be shocked at how much packaging waste. And we were talking about this this morning. If, you know, if you're, you're fitting out an entire floor of a building, then the amount of waste is unbelievable. And um, we just, uh, I've just started working with a, an exhibition called uh, Planted. And we've made one of the kind of key points of the show is that anybody that's exhibiting at it doesn't uh, produce any waste at all. So everything that has to be delivered to the show gets delivered with, with packaging that goes back and gets reused when nothing is left behind. And, and it is a bit of a challenge, but it is totally possible. And we did, we did this sort of show last year and ended up with just tiny, tiny amounts of waste. You know, what's being created as, and used as single waste plastics or single use materials is, is just shocking and, and is not necessary at all if we think about this in a creative way. I've had so much plastic and polystyrene coming out of my ears, it's ridiculous. And I can't stand it every time it does. And there are companies out there who are really good. You, even if you're, you've got um, delicate materials, you don't have to use plastics to you know, protect them um, in transit at all. But um, unless we keep on telling them to do better and, and telling suppliers to go to their packaging suppliers and say, well, actually, can you design this in a different way? Then um, nothing's really gonna change. So part of your declaration also talks about a commitment to strengthening working practices, but at a practical level. What does that actually mean and what changes have you made or, or do you want to make? So um, I said earlier about um, B Corps and how MCM are in the process of going through um, getting that certification. Um, we should, should have it in about a month's time. But I just want to quickly explain what B Corps is. because I think it's a really um, great way of doing business um, in, a kind of, in the future. Um, essentially, a B Corps is a, it's a new kind of business and it's actually written into the legal framework of your, um, your business. So it's the articles of association actually get changed by a lawyer um, to, to balance purpose, um, your profit with purpose. So you've actually got a duty as a business, not just to make a profit for your shareholders, but to also improve the world and improve the social impact as well as sustainability. Yeah, I was, I, again, I, on the website, I couldn't see anything that the architects had come up with that was particularly practical other than just a series of sort of declarations. But it sounds to me as though you guys are planning to be much, much more proactive. Are you going to have some sort of knowledge hub or, you know, it sounds as though you've got big plans. We've got lots and lots of ideas bubbling under that we're, we're working out. Initially, our, our focus was to get the site launched and to get it up and to be marketing it and getting other practices involved. And that now at this stage, you know, we're really looking forward to, you know, what is it that we've got to do? Um, and I think part of that is, is um, being open and democratic about it within the other working practices going, you know, what, what's the, the, the missing knowledge gap? And are there any other working practices that, that any of you have implemented sort of around this or recently? At the moment, the Well AP and Fitwell um, is really on um, talking about more commercial environments. Um, but, and, and I've looked at the information, it's really good. Um, they haven't yet trickled down to multi-person's um, households or single dwellers at the moment. So I've kind of taken that um, information and, and adapted it accordingly, but it's really important um, to consider the human impact at, at all levels. I always looked at um, uh, workplace design and it, it's always kind of been in the headlines about the impact in, in, in terms of work. Of course, we're all working at home and um, there's, there's no, never actually been any information really about 
how when working at home is affecting your well-being which you know this past year has kind of really highlighted how important that that gap is we really kind of need to fill that gap quick before the world kind of opens up because it won't open up the same so just for the benefit of our listeners Jex where would people find out about this yeah there's actually a website called well AP um, and there's fit well as well and there's um consumer websites actually but they're really focusing on at the moment um and they're putting out material i believe the end of this year and next year it's more to do with residential design and i'd just like to say you know there is a, a sort of slightly complex link between this idea of, of planetary well-being and health and well-being you know because obviously we, we know that well-being in, in built environment has risen up the agenda as well this year but it's worth stating that you know our own health and well-being is intrinsically linked to the health and well-being of our planet you know when we talk about designs damaging the planet it's not it's damaging the habitable ecosystem and biosphere that we live in you know that's the thing we're killing the thing that we live on the air that we breathe so you know we create healthy buildings and then we recognize that uh, the, the, those healthy environments are good for us then you know that's the stepping stone to to wanting to reduce our impacts on the wider natural environment that supports all of our, our global well-being and, and habitation I, I was just thinking in terms of wellness, I find it can be quite a good way to slip sustainability under the radar with some certain clients um, because everyone cares about the wellness of their staff or themselves or it's quite quite an easy sell to sort of say, well, you don't want them to be breathing, you know, toxins and you want to be living in a healthy environment. So it, it can be quite a good way to get sustainability into the conversation as well. Part of the problem of why we are where we are now is because we see ourselves as detached from the places that we're inhabiting and that we're living in, don't we? Absolutely. I mean, you only need to look at the sort of levels of litter around our roads and our streets and our cities to go, people are completely disconnected. How can you chuck something and expect that it's, you know, somebody else is going to pick it up or it's going to magically disappear away? You know, there is no away. This is the planet that we're living on and that we need to look after it and respect it. So, you know, part of it starts in, you know, how we treat the environment, but, but part of it is how we, we, we find ways of living on it more sustainably. So your, your declaration also states that together with your clients, you will commission and design spaces within buildings as indivisible components of a larger, constantly regenerating and self-sustaining system. Can you explain what you mean by that, please? Um, interior design doesn't exist in a vacuum. I think we all know that by now. We're designing spaces that exist within buildings, within communities, within you know cities as well. You know, it's a it's a big system, and we work also work with a whole host of consultants and engineers and architects, project managers, all sorts of people to make these things happen. And in order to um, create, keep doing this forever, which is the definition of sustainability, is we need to make sure that these spaces can be regenerated. We can recycle things and, at the end of use and you know, disassemble things and we can use those materials in future. Um, and things aren't, don't just end up in the bin at the end of every kind of fit out cycle. So we, we need to work in tandem with all the others in the industry kind of to form this kind of closed loop industry that, that isn't damaging our planet and using resources unnecessarily. So this is more about the team and construction professionals at a sort of practical level on projects. It's a bit of both, I'd say. It's 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 kind of one big system. The system is people who are involved. You know, we might be designing something now that we might use some wood as part of it, which is designed for disassembly. So 
after our, our project reaches the end of its life and somebody wants to you know, change, change that office, they can take that piece of wood and they can use it on another project or they can use it in the new project. That might be another designer that, you know, maybe not even born yet, but they're, they're able to use that continually. Yeah, I think all too often we think about sustainability as being, you know, less bad or, or zero bad to the planet. But clearly the planet is in crisis. We're, we're living in a climate crisis. You know, literally we've got, we've got forests on fire, we've got flooding, uh, often in the same place in very short spaces of time. We've got literally catastrophic events going on. You know, we've gone further than, than, than we should, clearly. And maybe it's time to recognize that we should stop being just, you know, less bad. I'm not as bad and that makes me eco-friendly. But that actually we start to need to become regenerative and think, you know, more proactively about how we can engage in a positive way to live, not just in, in harmony to be less bad, but actually contribute positively back. And I, I can see now more and more suppliers and producers and material manufacturers um, creating products that actually uh, embed carbon into them. Uh, and think about that kind of carbon sequestration into products that locks carbon away, that is actually more positive for the environment than it is about being just less bad. I was um, watching the other day about we only have 60 harvests left and that doesn't even give um, our children like a life, you know, get them to the end of their lifespan. And that really scares me that, you know, we're not really thinking about what we're handing over to the next generations. You know, there's the, we've got to provide the way for them to be on this planet. We don't have another option. So we've got to think about it now, um, about their future and caring off to do, you know, make changes. Absolutely. Right, okay. Now, your declaration also talks about post-occupancy evaluation as part of your basic scope of work. How will that work in practice? Yeah, so I think this is really important that, that in a way we don't have very many ways of measuring the success of what it is that we do as interior designers. You know, is it just that we've met some aesthetic ideal or we've squeezed the right number of desks into a workplace? But actually we need to find the metrics to demonstrate success. Um, pre and post occupancy evaluation is the way that we should be doing that. Now, a lot of the work that, that uh, I do in the world of health and wellbeing and biophilic design is, is what we call an evidence-based system. So it uses evidence and research that's been undertaken over the last 20 to 30 years to, to measure the success of the application of wellbeing or biophilic design principles. Now, essentially what we need to be doing is measuring, you know, what's going on at the moment and create baselines for how people are operating uh, and how the success of building is actually, you know, how building is performing. And then through that, use it as a brief to measure. And then once the brief has been met and, and, the, and the refurbishment or the creation of a space has happened, we need to go back and do post-occupancy evaluations. So that is both, you know, measuring the things um, uh, like temperature, humidity, lighting levels, but also the quantitative elements about asking people how a building makes somebody feel. Um, this is a subject that, that we've done, uh, we've explored with the building research establishment, we've written white papers on it, and I think it's something that the interior design industry really needs to engage with, is that idea that, you know, we should be measuring the success and the impact of the quality of our designs. It doesn't need to necessarily be a, sort of a BRIAM excellent building. And how often do you think these would have to be completed? How often would you do them? Every Would it be an annual thing on all your buildings, or five years, or...? 
Well, I mean, it's embedded into the well standard. Uh, the, the buildings have to have post-occupancy evaluations to measure, measure the success of the principles that are applied to a space. Um, essentially, a post-occupancy evaluation should happen after that honeymoon period. So after that period that, that people move in and go, oh, this is a lovely building, this is great. Get over that, so maybe six months after occupation. Um, that's when you, it's a sort of good time to start measuring and perhaps measure across an entire year. So you get over individual blips in the weather or football scores or whatever it is that, that changes people's mood and physical and psychological well-being, but make sure you kind of get a measurement of it. I mean, it can happen through wearables, it can happen through questionnaires, MailChimp, you know, there's all sorts of ways that we can do it, as well as just sort of being in a space and visually kind of um, understanding how, how well it, it is performing. That, that that I can see that definitely working in the workplace and in hospitality applications, etc. But what about residential? Clients' attitudes in residential towards sustainability is is super important for for a lot of interior designers. Jex, you probably work a, a lot more in that space than than perhaps uh, Josie or Oliver necessarily do. So how how is it going to work in residential? Just have the courtesy to ask your clients afterwards after the fact that, you know, when the place is done, how are you feeling? How are you sleeping? How you, you know, what have you brought into that environment that can create a change? I think follow-up is really important. I don't believe in, you know, designing a space and saying goodbye at the end of the process. I don't think it's fair. And I don't think I'm doing a good job to take care of the well-being of my clients by not following up. Do residential clients care about sustainability? Well, some do and some don't, but I think if I'm, you know, for me, it's always on my mind anyway. So even if they, they're not asking for it, I'm already thinking about it for them. Oliver, I think uh, I think Josie summed it up earlier that maybe they don't all care about sustainability, you know, because obviously one building, one home is going to, I mean, it's a tiny drop in the ocean for the impact on the planet. You know, but actually, if you talk to people and you reframe the conversation of sustainability around, well, you know, how is this building going to affect you? Do you care if it poisons you? Well, most people will say, yeah, I care. I don't want it to poison me. Or do you want to be warm? Do you want to be mold free? Do you want to have good air quality? Um, do you want to have lots of daylight, which will help balance your circadian rhythms? People go, well, yeah, of course I want this. You know, everybody wants to be happier and healthier. And actually, as Josie mentioned, you know, many of the ideas that help us deliver those are also sustainability principles. So I think as soon as we start to embed and enmesh this sort of dual principle of both a carbon-centered and a human-centered approach, then it leads us to, to kind of create more truly sustainable buildings, buildings that not only support us, our health and well-being, but that also have maybe just not just a reduced impact on the environment, but hopefully a regenerative impact. How does the net zero construction movement feed into this? Uh, basically, um, the impact a building has is one aspect, but of course, as interior designers, we're not often necessarily involved in the heating, mechanical ventilation, we're not involved in the building fabric, or, or the specification of windows, or, or uh, air tightness, you know, what we're involved with are things that exist outside of that. So, you know, absolutely, we need to engage with buildings that, that want to aspire to be net zero carbon. And within that, we should be continuing that, that kind of conceptual ethos in all the work that we do and make sure that the products, the materials that we bring into that building are coming from an equally good source um, that reflects that, that, that concept. 
I, you know, I, I don't work in residential um, design anymore. I did for a couple of years at the beginning of my career. Um, but it's quite, it is quite important that to recognise that homes um, account for, I think it's about 15% of the UK's greenhouse gas emissions. And that's not that's just their in-use um, emissions. On top of that, you've also got whatever you've put into that building. So um, it's a big proportion and every kind of every little helps, I think. So now that you have made your declaration, have you got next steps planned? What, what happens now? So we've obviously been very focused on getting it live, getting as many signatures as possible. Um, and I think the great thing about this is we've actually started a, a group of like-minded companies and individuals. But now we've got this kind of group of people um, that are all interested and engaged. We, we can kind of, we can take a poll, we can work out from those members, you know, what, what are the gaps in our knowledge? What do we need more information on? What do we need to maybe create kind of working groups around? Um, is there any, any events or talks that people would find useful? And it, again, just elevating that collective knowledge that the industry has. At the moment, of course, we're operating under quite extreme circumstances. And I think it's worth recognising that, that this is not necessarily normal life that we do hope that, that once the world settles back down into some level of perceived normality, that we can get together, that we can congregate, that we can have conferences, we can discuss and share ideas, uh, make some of this information more open source, and that also we can start to engage the wider industry to by speaking at events and uh, engaging with other designers and, and also sort of product suppliers uh, and services as well. So we do hope to be getting out there to encouraging um, conversation, debate, and engaging with other members of our of our community. Is there a vetting procedure? I think it's um, obviously not everyone is at a different points in their journey towards um, you know sustainable or regenerative design. Um, I don't I don't think we want to be excluding people based on what they're currently doing. But I think if you're signing up, you need to have an intention to do better and to improve. And I think even if you were you know the best company going, you need to improve still. I think it's 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 constantly improving. I think it's not really a marketing tool that companies can like say, um, yeah, I'm doing this and I've signed up. So it's kind of, they're already committed to a certain extent anyway, when they're signing up. You, you, if, if it's sustainability is not of interest, then you wouldn't be signing up in the first place. And presumably suppliers have to have some sort of code of practice or sustainability policy in place before they sign up in their cases. Yeah, I mean, basically any company, uh, design company, needs to have a website, needs to be registered in the UK, and that we do need a director level of buy-in. Um, and then for, for suppliers, they do also need to demonstrate a sustainability statement to, to show that they are thinking about it in the right way and they're not just sort of entering it because they, they, they see it as some level of greenwash, but they already have some level of commitment. We're not necessarily trying to catch anybody out. You know, we're not going to be policing this. Um, and I think in the world of architects declare, the, the AJ has outed some practices, uh, which has forced them to go, do you know what, we can't be part of this and, and carry on our, our, our kind of the work that we do. So there have been um, some, some hiccups there. But, you know, we feel that maybe the interior design industry is a little bit different. We're maybe not as advanced in our level of sustainable thinking and practice and the ethos across the board as the world of architecture. And that we really do need to get people motivated uh, and you know just going no the, the journey starts here and let's get people involved let's let's like Josie said get, have some level of intent to want to be better yeah I think it would be just be judged by integrity of 
individuals anyway you know if they haven't got any integrity about them it was it would come to life in the end we don't need to police that apart from signing the declaration what else can individual interior design companies do to help and um, so i think it's worth um acknowledging that our impact is massive i'm, I'm thinking particularly from my side within commercial interior design but some of the companies we're working with are huge multinational firms and we might be working on you know maybe just their London headquarters or we might just be working on you know what, what a, a European office but we can if we embed design principles in very early in the project which are around sustainability and that's part of the client buys into that and that's part of the project that can then go on to be rolled, rolled out potentially and other other projects happen further down the line and could also inform how they work, it can inspire their staff once they move into um, the office as well. They've got stories to tell. They've got, you know, you might have a recycled tabletop or a bit of reclaimed furniture, and it's a story they can tell, which actually inspires people to talk about sustainability in scenarios where they maybe wouldn't have otherwise. So I think that's quite an important thing. Um, but I do think that the, the big thing you can do right now is um, to sign up <laughs> to Interior Design Declares. Um, and spread the word um, and just try and implement the, um, the declaration within your practice and just work towards improving how you do things. And maybe push it out on social media as much as possible. That would be great, yeah, please share. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're, we're highly reliant on suppliers to be doing better and to increase the options that we have available to make them not just sustainable, but also beautiful and aspirational uh, and uh, to drive the kind of, the language of the aesthetics of sustainability forward whilst doing the right thing. Um, I think it's absolutely essential that suppliers and manufacturers do get involved. So if designers could only change one thing about the way they run their businesses to mitigate the effects of climate change and the loss of biodiversity, what change would make the most impact? And I was hoping to get a comment from each of you. I think it's really hard to pick just one thing um, to do. Um, I've kind of cheated in that when I was thinking about this, and I've kind of got a couple of things. Because um, I think the first thing you've got to start with is is to look at your own practice and how you run that, or how you're, you know, could be anything from, you know, is your energy supplier um, supplying you with renewable energy, or um, do you have a cycle to work scheme? You know, how much business travel do you do? looking at it on kind of very micro level like that, what you're actually doing, you can kind of assess that and make changes to improve what you're doing there. And from there, you can then kind of bounce off of that and then improve things on your projects. But I think you've kind of got to get your house in order, um, kind of in tandem, but um, you can then make the biggest change when you um, then move on to improving how you work on your project. For me, it would be about transforming the industry from a linear model of make, use and dispose to, to make, use and reuse and keep all those materials and those products and in a loop of usefulness. And, and like Josie says, it, it's about thinking about that from the design level of making sure that the things that, that you're installing are not necessarily destroyed when you remove them at the end of their life, but they can actually be removed and reused. And, and there are more and more industries doing this with, with you know, reusing kitchens, reusing materials, thinking about this sort of circular economy process and making sure that we're not just throwing stuff away and putting it in a, in a kind of hole in the ground, but you know, that we're recognizing that all the materials we have are finite and that we've got to keep finding ways of reusing them for future generations and to reduce our impact on the planet as a result of that. Um, for me, the most impact would be to slow down the design process and 
you know, take steps to think about sustainability from the get go, not just when um, furniture is delivered. Um, we need, you know, if a lot of the time, especially nowadays, that a lot of the process is kind of really sped up and people want things now, now, now. But if we slowed that down, then we can really think deeper. And I think that, you know, a lot of it is to do with um, communication and deeper thinking. And then we can, you know, we affect change at the end. I think suppliers need to now provide instructions how to deconstruct, because at the moment you get instructions how to, you know, how to put it together, but then there's nothing at the end and you kind of just rip it apart because you don't know how. But if you knew how, then, you know, that would make a big difference as well. And you can put it back into the, the economy. We'll make it their responsibility for doing that. And then it's going to certainly change things quite rapidly. If you say at the end of its life, this is coming back to you, you decide what to do with it. It's going to change their whole financial approach. Where do people go to find out more and to sign up? If people go to interiordesigndeclares.co.uk, then they can sign up there. On the website, you can find out all the um, steps that you can take to be more sustainable and, and fix um, biodiversity um, within your practice and for your firm. Together we're stronger and we can actually make change. So I think then that's sage advice from, from our three wonderful guests to, to slow down, to examine your business practices and introduce the loop of usefulness. And I think what I was going to say was that you need to ask not what your planet can do for you, but what you can do for your planet. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much to Josie Lees, Oliver Heath and Jack Stone for being our special guests today. It's such a worthy cause and it's something that we should all be getting behind. Yes, inspiring stuff. Thank you, Josie, Oliver and Jex. Uh, been brilliant having you on and I'm sure there's lots that our audience will take from that. We'd also like to show our support for series partners, Parkside Architectural Tiles. You can find out more about Parkside at parkside.co.uk. You can listen to the Interior Design Business on audio on-demand services everywhere. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Interior Design Business Pod. This episode of the Interior Design Business is a Wildwood production.